1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 10 to 17 this morning. Before we dive in, I'd like to open us up with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. Lord, I pray that we would hold it in the regard that we need to as our primary authority in this life. And I pray that we would have hearts that desire to do what it says so that we would be in obedience to all that you have called us to do. And Lord, if there's anything in us that is pushing against that obedience, I pray that you would help us to recognize that and help us to root it out of our lives. We ask all this in your son's precious name. Amen. So last week we started back into our walk through the epistles of the New Testament. and We started 1 Corinthians and we got through the first opening part of the, the first paragraph, if you will, of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And we saw in that paragraph his typical greeting where he always tells the church who he is and who he's with, which in this case was Sosthenes. And he, always, he tells them that he always gives thanks for them in his prayers. Right? He thanks the Lord for the grace that was given to them through Christ. He acknowledges that God has given all the members of that church spiritual gifts uh, with the idea that those spiritual gifts would be used to pour out for the church. And so they're to serve the church until either they go home to be with the Lord or until Christ comes back. The, those gifts are meant to be used for Christ's kingdom. And he also acknowledged in that opening paragraph that Christ will strengthen all the believers in Corinth throughout their lives so that at the end of their life, in the day of the Lord, uh, they will be strengthened to the point of being, being seen as blameless. Right? This means that those who have truly placed their faith in Christ, they're going to endure in their faith until the end because it's not them holding on to Christ, it's Christ holding on to them. And so they will endure to the end of their lives or until Christ returns, whichever comes first, and they will be declared blameless in that day, not because they never sinned, not because they do not deserve God's eternal condemnation for the sin that they've committed, but because Jesus atoned for their sin on the cross and now God is holding them and sustaining them through the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. And so this is how Paul says hello. And today we're getting ready to dive into the actual body of the letter and we're going to jump right into some of the problems that this church has, problems that have become known to Paul. And the first thing that we're going to see right off the bat is that there is division within this church. Right? These people are arguing about who they follow. Right? They're arguing, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, I follow Christ. And Paul is so discouraged by this argument about who they follow that he's going to spend the next four chapters speaking to the Corinthian church, addressing these problems, and trying to bring it back into unity. So divisiveness within the church is a big deal. And Paul, we're going to see, he's going to address this head-on with them. And he does it in, in a very comforting way, but he also does it in a very direct way. So we're going to take a look at that. So if you would read that with me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17, Paul says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. 
For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. And so, from the start here, notice the authority from which Paul speaks, and notice his approach to the troubled church. In the first line of the body of the letter, Paul says that he urges them in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to agree in what they say so that there would be no divisions among them. That they would be united. That they would have the same understanding and the same conviction. And what we're seeing here is an apostle who is urging the church but not commanding the church. Right? This is not, he's not seeing this as blatant disregard for the things of God. What he sees here are people who have just gone astray. So an apostle was given authority over the church in the first century by the Lord. So this letter could have taken a much more authoritative tone. Paul doesn't have to urge, he can command. But yet we see here, this is not Paul's approach. In verse 10, Paul says that he urges them, he pleads with them to find unity among one another. Paul has heard that there is this trouble in the church and Paul knows that this is a relatively young church. They're young in the faith. They've only been in the faith for maybe three or four years at this point. They haven't had a ton of discipleship. He was with them for about 18 months But I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that's not a really long time, especially when you think of how little resources they would have for other gospel teaching at this point. And not only are they young in the faith, but they're young in the faith in a city that would probably be the equivalent of Las Vegas for us in our country, in our culture, right? Sin City. And it's probably worse. Corinth is a city that is well known for indulging sinful habits. It was so well known for these sinful pursuits that there was a term coined in Greek. I don't know how to say it. It's on the back of your worship guide. But there is a term that was coined in the Greek language that means to live like a Corinthian. That would be like us saying to live like a Las Vegasian, I guess. Right? If someone said that about you, they were saying that you lived a drunken, debaucherous life. That you are someone who is known for sleeping around. You're known for drunken brawls and and drug-induced comas and all this kind of stuff. Like this, This is who you are as a person. If they said you live like a Corinthian, that's what they're saying about you. It's not a compliment. And this is the culture that these... Corinthian believers are are coming up in. This is what they're being pulled out of. And we're seeing here that they are struggling a little bit in coming out of that culture. So you've got a young church. It's a church that is in a rough spot. And because of this, Paul doesn't come down on them really hard on those struggles. We've seen him come down hard. He came down pretty hard on the Galatians. 
But this one is one where he comes at it in a, in a more fatherly tone. Instead, he's going to say in chapter 4, verse 14, that he's writing to them as his dear children. Right? He is their spiritual father. He is the one who introduced them to Christ. He is the one that spent his blood, sweat, and tears pouring into them for 18 months to try to bring them up as much as he could into maturity and into righteousness. And so he has affection for them. They are his spiritual children and he loves them. And because he loves them, he wants the best for them. And sometimes when we want the best for people, we have to rebuke. We have to correct. And these people have started to go a little bit crazy in a lot of the different ways that they are conducting themselves as a church. And so Paul is sending this letter to address some of that. So we're going to see in the first half of the letter, he's addressing some things that he has heard about the Corinthian church. And in the last half of the letter, we're going to see him responding to a letter they originally sent him. We don't get to see that letter. We just see him saying, hey, this is some of the things that you had asked about. And right now he is correcting from some of the things that he has heard from Chloe's people. This is actually where our, our daughter Chloe gets her name. We don't know anything about her, just that she has people. And so Chloe has people. And those people have addressed the fact that the Corinthian church is struggling. And Paul says that to them it is best for them to be united with Christ. Paul is urging them to get back on the same page as Christ when considering the unity of the church. We also see in verse 10 that Paul is speaking to this issue through the authority of Christ. Paul has his own authority. He can address that. But that authority comes from Christ. Paul urges the people of the church in the name of the, our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The, the, the words that he's saying here, they're not Paul's words. They're not Paul's opinion on the church. He's not telling them what he thinks about the church. This is coming directly from Christ. Unity within the church is an expectation for the church, and it's been placed on all true believers for all time through the authority of Christ. But this is not something that times out. The same expectation of unity that this church had back in the first century is the same expectation of unity that we have today. And it will be the same expectation of unity if Christ tarries for another 2,000 years. The church is meant to be unified. That's what Christ longs for in His church. We see this if you look at John chapter 17, I'll put that on the back of your bulletin there. We see in Jesus' prayer for his followers in John 17, this is right before Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. So he's already anticipating the crucifixion that's coming. And he says, I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. He's, he's begging the Father for unity. In the same way that He and the Father are united, He wants the church to be united just like that. If you continue reading on verses, in verse 20 through 23, you see this. Jesus says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in Me through their word. So He's talking about not only these people, but those who he will disciple, they will disciple later. May all... Be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. 
I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So why do we see here that Jesus wants his church unified? He wants his church unified because he wants it to reflect the unity that we find in the Godhead. He says that he and the Father are one. And in the same way, he and the Holy Spirit are one. Right? So he wants his people to be the same way that he is in the Trinitarian Godhead. And he says there also that when we are unified, that our unity helps us prove that the Father sent the Son into the world to die for the sins of those who will put their faith in Christ. Right? Why, why would anyone listen to us if we're fighting amongst ourselves? Right? We are proclaiming Right? To, to be followers of Christ, we are the called out ones. We are the ones that are pulled out from the world. Right, The ecclesia that we talked about last week, we are called out from the world and we are called to be different. Why would anyone listen to that message that we proclaim? We say this is the most important message in the world. This is the most important decision you will ever make in your life is what you do with Christ. And yet... What if we said, I've got the most important message in the world for you, and I'll convince you of that right after I finish convincing this stupid idiot that the pastors that he listens to are not as good as the pastors that I listen to? How do you think that registers with people? In verse 11, Paul says that it's been reported by Chloe's people that there is rivalry between the people of the church based on which teacher they prefer. And the word rivalry, it should produce a proper image in your mind. It's people battling against each other, at least verbally, on who's better. I mean, in, in our culture here, think Duke and Carolina fans, right? Rivalry. Snipping at each other all the time about, ha-ha, I did better this year than you did. And like, this is the way the church is interacting. Think about, I mean, when we were down doing the church plant in South Carolina, it was Clemson in South Carolina. That was the big rivalry, and that's all people would ever talk about. And they didn't like each other. Think Cowboys and the com Commanders, or whatever their name is now. I don't know, but the rivalry. Right? Constantly coming at each other as enemies. As those who are constantly in dispute. That's what Paul is getting notifications about from Chloe's people. These people are arguing with one another publicly about who's teaching they like better. They're arguing about who they follow. Now, people are trying to elevate themselves up over other people based on the personality of the teacher they like. Out of all these people, the message should be basically the same. The gospel hasn't changed, it won't change. And none of these people, if we look throughout church history, none of these people were ever called out for apostasy. None of these people were ever called out for heresy. So in theory, the material that they're teaching should be sound. Right? They're going to come at it from different perspectives. Right? I don't teach like some, the same way that somebody else teaches because I have different experiences in my life. And I'm teaching a different con congregation than they are. And so it's going to be different. It's going to sound different. But the message should be pretty much the same. And so all these people are really championing is the teaching style of the, the teacher that they like. 
And they're doing it in such a way that they're showing that there is division in the church. They're showing the people in Corinth that these people are not unified. They're not coming together over this. Why should I be any different in my life? These are arguing just like some, the, the people that would argue which gladiator they like the most. Like This is ridiculous. And this disunity in the church is showing that these people do not love each other the way that they should. Paul points them back to what is actually important when it comes to the gospel in verses 13 to 15. In verse 13, he says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. It's Paul saying, I didn't die for your sins. Peter was not crucified for you so that you could have a right relationship with God. Apollos did not live a perfect life so that he might be an acceptable sacrifice for your sins. None of these men can atone for you. So why are we elevating any of them for any reason? Christ is the only person whom we should elevate above everyone else. And then Paul reminds us that even then, Christ isn't divided. Even when we elevate Christ, we should not be divided in the process of how we do that. Now, that goes against everything that Christ has taught us. And in the book of John, chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, Jesus says this, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So how are we supposed to show people that we are disciples of Christ? We do that through our love. We do that through our affection for one another. Is that how the church is known? I mean, currently it's not how the church is known in Corinth. We don't know anything about Chloe. We don't know anything about where her people are or why they're there. They could, she could be a businesswoman in Ephesus and she may be sending her people into Corinth just so that you know, they can have a business relationship. She might be someone in Corinth who just said, hey, this isn't good. And they, she's sending her people to Paul to say, hey, you got to do something about this. Like words getting around Corinth that this place is a mess. That cannot be how the church is known. We must be known for our love. We must be known for the affection that we have for one another. The, the rivalries had gotten so bad that Paul announces in verse 14, he's glad that he didn't baptize anybody in the church except for a handful of people because apparently that stuff matters. Right? I mean, I don't know. After you get baptized, does Paul sign your shirt? Do you get an autograph as he sends you away? Right? If you, after Apollos gets done, Apollos was apparently very eloquent. Do you have him sign a book when he's done? This is not supposed to be something that we elevate. I did think it was funny, though, that Paul wrote, the only people that I baptized was Crispus and Gaius. And he's like, oh, wait, there was a few others. But he decided to just leave that in and not scratch it out because he didn't want to start over. thought that was funny. But he says, these people are the only ones I baptize, and I'm so glad that it is the only people that I baptize because I don't want you to be able to hold that over someone else's head. 
How ridiculous is that? That you would boast about who put you in the water. Baptism is merely an outward sign of an inward transition in your life. It means that you have gone from death to life. When we put you under the water, it symbolizes your death. When we pull you out of the water, it symbolizes new life. And it doesn't matter who does that for you. In fact, I often encourage people who are in the faith, who love you, to be the one that does the baptism for you. It doesn't matter if I do it. It doesn't change anything if I do it. The water doesn't magically become more holy because I step in it. It probably gets worse. The person that puts you in the water does not matter. It's the person who died for you, who gave you new life as he took your old dead heart and replaced it with an alive heart, gave you new life, new relationship with the Father. He's the only one that matters. It doesn't matter who preached that message to you. Now, you should be grateful that they were willing to preach it to you. Absolutely. But that person doesn't need to be elevated. They didn't do anything. They were just faithful to the message. Paul said, I'm so glad that I didn't baptize you. I cannot, he couldn't, he couldn't stand the idea of people using him as a, a, a boasting chip. Yeah, well, you got baptized by Peter. I got baptized by Paul. Now, he, he can't stand the idea of that. Paul says in verse 17 that he wasn't sent to baptize. He was sent to preach the gospel. Verse 17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Now Paul's saying here, eloquence and wisdom can lead people to follow a person. He's like, if I got up here and I was well-spoken, you might listen to what I have to say. You might actually follow me. But that's not the point of the gospel. You guys following me is not the point. If I'm not pointing to Christ, then I am screwing this up. And if you're not hearing Christ and all you're hearing is the way I say things, then you're missing the point. Paul says, I came with the gospel and I tried to do that in a way that did not have eloquence or wisdom attached to it so that you wouldn't be deceived into following the wisdom or the eloquence. And he wants them to follow Jesus. And this was honestly, this is one of the attacks that many people have leveled at the Apostle Paul because he said that he wasn't an apostle because he didn't speak good. And I find it hard to believe that someone who spoke in the Areopagus, if, when, if you'll go back to Acts chapter 17, right, the people of Athens, they would stand around, they would listen to new ideas in a place called the Areopagus. And when they would do that, if they liked it, they would invite you back. And Paul was invited back after he shared the, the message of Christ with the people of Athens. I find it very difficult to believe that Paul was not an eloquent speaker. I find it very difficult to believe that Paul did not speak with wisdom. And then the people of Athens would say, we would hear you again on this. I think Paul understood some of the, the heart of the people of Corinth. And he said, I didn't come talking like that this time. I didn't want you following me because I, I spoke well or because it seemed wise to you or that I was wise. He wants everyone to point to Christ. And he's going to spend the next four chapters talking about how this church can bring this back into unity because that's important. And when we're talking about the unity of the church, we're not just talking about here. That's important. 
But we're talking about the capital C church as well, the people of God across time, across space. We are supposed to be unified in this message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is simply this. You are a sinner in need of a savior. You can't save yourself. Jesus came to live the life you couldn't live, die the death that you deserved, and was resurrected showing that he conquered sin and death forever if you will put your faith in him. That is the message that we unify around. And it doesn't matter where that message is preached. If it's preached here or if it's preached at the Summit Church, which is building the church on the corner over here, Crosslink, Central Baptist, wherever, however, we're all on the same team. And so we should not be beating our chests saying, I follow Chris or I follow Ken or I follow J.D. Greer or whoever else is your pastor of choice. Like that is not important. We are all proclaiming the same message. But yet it is not hard to look around to find divisiveness in the church. And it could be any number of things that divide us. And so my first question of application for you is, are you a divisive person? Are you someone who is constantly looking for what's not the way that you want it to be? Are you constantly looking to stir something up because you didn't get your way? Your preference hasn't been met. You, are, you don't like the church down the street, so you're going to talk badly about the church down the street even though the church down the street is doing just fine in preaching the gospel. Are you a divisive person? Do you argue a lot about non-essential issues? And when I talk about essential issues, I'm talking about first-tier, hand-closed things of the church that we cannot get away from if we do we're no longer christian right the trinitarian nature of god is jesus the son of god is he eternal all of these things have to be here it did he actually die on the cross is he resurrected all of this stuff you can't say otherwise if you do you're not a christian but there are so 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 many more that fall into that second third and tertiary issues that have no bearing on the gospel at all Right? Do you argue about those things? These are the, the first tier issues are what should divide the church. And there are certain things that should cause division in the church. Right? If, if we start allowing sinful practices in this church that nobody is challenging, someone needs to stand up and say, that's enough. Paul's going to address in 1 Corinthians, there was someone who was in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And the church was cheering him on because of the freedom that he had in Christ. No. It's like, are you crazy? Even the pagans don't do that. And here you are cheering it on. No. Divide for that. If the church will not stand up and say, this is wrong, then you need to find another church. We see evidence of that in the Methodist church just recently. They, they split over the, the issue of homosexuality. Right? Some people are like, no, it's fine. And other people are like, it absolutely is not fine. And there was a division in that church. There should be a division in that church. Right? That's one of the top tier issues. That's sin. And we cannot call sin good and say it's okay. And that love is love. That's not loving. But all of this other secondary stuff, things like the music, what type of music do you like? Do you like contemporary? Do you like hymns? Do you like Christian rap? What's your thing? Right? The sermon type. 
I personally prefer expositional sermons working through books of the Bible. Some people prefer topical sermons all the time, every time. This should not divide the church. Predestination versus free will. This is... People are constantly throwing this stuff out there and getting into debates about this. Guess what changes about the gospel if it's predestination or if it's free will? Absolutely nothing. Nothing changes. People are still saved in the same way, which is the proclamation of the gospel. Nothing changes. So we should stop arguing over stupid things and focus on sharing the message of the gospel. Right? The Bible translation that's used. Can you believe that people have divided churches because they didn't agree on which Bible verse or translation that they should use? What's even worse is I have heard stories of people literally dividing a church because they couldn't agree on the color of the carpet. You have nothing better to do with your time. You have no lost people in your life. You have accomplished everything that God has set for you in your city. So the point, so you have no other problems to address other than the color of the carpet in the church. That's ridiculous. We are to be unified around the gospel. There are a handful of other things that we must stand firm on as well. But we should not be divisive people. Being a divisive person is one of the things that Paul has said can get you removed from membership of the church. That's how much God wants unity among his people. So if you are constantly stirring up strife, then Christ says you should go. Paul will say, remove those people from your fellowship. We must be unified. We must stand firm on the gospel and we must take that message to the world and we're going to find that there are differences in opinion on any number of things but we must stand firm on the things that matter very specifically the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ he was the one who was crucified for our sins it is in his name the father the son and the holy spirit that we are baptized not the name of Paul not the name of Peter not the name of Apollos And we must stand firm in that. We must make sure that we stand firm in that for this church and for those who would divide other churches as well. With that in mind, let's pray together. Father, it's my desire that we would be people that are so focused on the gospel that we would not find ourselves in any way arguing about stupid things. I pray that we would stand firm on the authority of Scripture and that we would make any arguments that we need to from the pages of this book, Lord, and it would all stem back to our love and desire to bring honor and glory to Christ. Protect us, Lord, as we have sinful tendencies just like anyone else and we have a tendency to desire our own preference and we also have a tendency to think that we're right no matter what. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit would be active in our lives, that He would change our hearts to see nothing but the cross. Lord, we would strive for that. We would strive to be unified in that. And anything that is not essential, we would push to the side. I ask all of this in your son's precious name. Amen.